Welcome to the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast. I'm Robert Harper, editor of the magazine. This week we have a reading by Maylan Tan from her short story collection Things to Make and Break, which was published by CB Editions earlier this year. Maylan is a Hong Kong-born writer who lives in London, where she studied for a BA in Fine Art and an MA in Creative Writing at Goldsmiths. As well as her short story collection, she also has a chapbook called Gurley, published by Future Tense Books, also earlier this year. Gurley is a beautifully produced little book. It's printed on recycled paper with vegetable-based inks. It's wonderfully understated and contains two of the most extraordinarily good short stories you could read. The Guardian called Things to Make and Break an excellent debut. Pank called it mind-blowingly good, and our own Lucy Janes, in her review in issue two of Bear Fiction magazine, said, this kind of writing is a serious turn-on. I recommend you get hold of both books as soon as you can. Maylan is just about to embark on a short tour throughout August and September to promote both titles, and I'll give you more details about that at the end of this podcast. The recording you're about to hear was made on April the 30th, 2014, at the Goody Hugh Cafe Bar in Cardiff, during the launch of issue two of Bear Fiction magazine. Maylan gives a reading from her story, Legendary. This is Maylan Tan. Thanks for having me. I'm going to read the first few pages of a short story called Legendary. He doesn't really talk about them. At least, he never tells me anything I want to know, their hang-ups, or what kind of pretty they are. He tells only half a story about each of them, and he tells it three times, verbatim, as if he has it written on the cuff of his sleeve. Normally, he doesn't have two words to rub together, but when he does, something kind of flickers. These broken sparks and the three times telling make his exes seem mythical, crystalline. When he tells me about Holly for the first time, we're at the movies, sitting too close to the screen. We're watching the trailers, and he's tracing shapes on the sensitive part of my wrist with his thumb. Every one of his exes has a thing. They've been molested, or are a cellist, or something. Holly shattered 17 bones, falling from a trapeze. She was wearing a cast and working in a library when he met her. Ten weeks later, when all the bones were knit, he finally saw her do her act. That's when he dumped her. He doesn't say, but I guess she looked too free and capable up there, swinging from the ropes. A girl like that could never honestly need you. We're fighting and driving to the coast. His sister is marrying a guy he made out with at prep school, and we're late for the rehearsal dinner because I put the car keys in my coat and then packed it. After being quiet for 20 minutes, he tells me about Holly again, a way of making up. Why do you like her so much better than the others? What do you mean? Well, she's the only one with a name. That's crazy, he says. He has one of those desks with a rolly top, and in that square, shallow drawer on the right is a manila envelope labeled tax papers with naked pictures of all of them. I open it only because I know he would never name an envelope tax papers. He would have separate ones for the different kinds of receipts and forms. The photos he's taken of me are still coiled inside his camera. 
At the time, he'd pretended it was a very spontaneous thing to do. I wonder why he thought he had to lie. Knowing what it was actually for would have made me want to do it more. I would have tried a lot harder. I study their loose-limbed, puppyish bodies like flashcards. Is the margarine blonde with Satan eyes the one who got sick from the smell of blown-out candles? This one freckles the color of fresh dirt sprayed across the bridge of her nose. She's the slow eater. Or she always left really long messages on his machine and used up the tape. Who could have raised show dogs and given him the clap? I hope it's the expensive one with the cheekbones who's making a kiss face. Holly is the only one I know for definite. She's dangerous looking with a muscly body, one arm a shade paler and thinner than the other. She's the worst kind of pretty, classically, mathematically gorgeous. I'm surprised to find that she's quite covered in long white scars. Somehow I'd imagined the bones smashing inside her without any damage to the surface, but I guess there had to be. I picture the two of them standing on a bleached wooden pier, his arm wrapped around her, a choppy, salted wind ruffling her fawn-colored hair. He reaches under her sweater and traces his blunt fingers along those shiny ridges, the skin there impossibly silky. She is herself, unmistakably. I teach myself to smile in a more teeth-bearing way, showing off the little space between the two in front. I buy sunglasses, sign up for a night class in life drawing, and start to wear black. I laugh with my head flung back, saying ha ha ha, instead of making suction sounds. Why have you started dressing like a mafia widow? I don't know what you're talking about. I pencil in the mole beneath my left eye and sign up for two more classes, karate and Italian. I wear my own clothes to work, but with a vest on top that has the Superman logo on it. It's meant to mean super career. This is probably too many classes now, he says, when I deliver my karate uniform to the house. Why didn't you just have them mail it? It's cheaper this way. I use the employee discount. He makes a face at my motorcycle. Can you get my sandwich from the fridge, I say. He sighs and goes inside. I did have the uniform mailed to me, but then I took it into work and logged it as a delivery. It's the best way of announcing things. He comes back out and gives me the sandwich. This is very sticky, he says. What is it? Bread and honey. I sit on my bike and eat while he paces around me. How's the art class? Any good? It's okay. I sit next to an old lady who draws only butt cheeks week after week. <laughs> what if the model is facing her? She still draws their butt cheeks. <laughs> he stops pacing. It's very grown up, the way he's wearing socks and shoes, even though it's Saturday morning and he's just at home. I don't get it, he says. I mean, if you're going to sacrifice three evenings a week, you might as well take a real course, get a degree. I have a degree, I remind him. He nods primly at the giant S on my chest. I look around for my clipboard. 
I didn't even know you wanted to be an artist, he says, exasperated. How are you planning to manage all these classes? I'll be fine, I tell him. Sign here, please. He does something with stocks and bonds and gets a haircut every three weeks. He drinks bourbon from a glass, one finger at a time, instead of swigging from the bottle. He wears the kind of shoes that need to be polished. Not a practicing Catholic, just chronic. Sleeps fetal. He's not my type, but he has large dry hands and a complicated nose with a deep dent near the top. I always think you can tell what someone is like in bed from the shape of his nose. And a knobbly Adam's apple, the white knuckle kind, you can see rise and fall. He ties me to the brass bars of his sleigh bed. The guys I'm usually with barely have a box spring under the mattress. They own two appliances, a coffee machine and a bong, and a jumble of chairs. Furniture is something that's just supposed to happen to you. He, on the other hand, goes antiquing. I'm doing things I've never done before, such as picking up dry cleaning. It's short but thick. And when he pushes it up inside, he doesn't use his hands at all. He doesn't look me in the eyes, only at my mouth. He takes me to his druggy work parties and steers me around from room to room by the base of my neck. When he laughs, his happiness builds just like a normal person's. But at the top, his eyes go blank, as if there's nothing there. I take the subway to night school. Lately, it's always raining, so I can't take the bike. Downtown, I switch from the southbound to the eastbound line. I run across the concourse, reaching the platform just as the train comes sliding in. The doors open to reveal a tangle of bodies, and I clock her immediately, that bone structure, the lean look in her eyes. As she brushes past me, everything snaps into place. I turn and follow her down the platform, watching her calf muscles flex. Holly, I say, and touch her elbow. She freezes for a second before turning around, like someone expecting to be caught. Oh, I'm not her, she says. Then she looks right at me and narrows her eyes. But you know, everyone always thinks I'm the person they're looking for. We stand there blinking at each other. She blows a tendril of hair out of her face and walks away. The train I should be on goes shooting past. I wonder if it's true that I'm looking for Holly. I must be, the way I just ran after this girl, without even thinking. What if she had turned out to be Holly? What would I have said? There are things I want to ask her, but I don't know what they are. Yet maybe, if I really were talking to Holly, I'd know. The rain makes night school smell like what it really is, a high school at night. It's a teenage movie where everyone is at least 30, lumbering down the halls and hunching around two small desks. In basic Italian, I sit next to the woman who would play the best friend in the movie. She's technically prettier than me, the heroine, but not sexy enough. There's a coffee station set up at the back of the classroom, as if we're in AA. When I get home, I go to his drawer and look at the pictures of Holly. They must have been taken in a hotel bed, 
because there are light switches on the headboard. Her nose is slightly burnt, her scars and tan lines glowing. I pretend to slide his cigar fingers along their crests again. Her body is warm and crisp, pumped full of sun. We've never been on vacation. I practice her stubborn, innocent demeanor in the bathroom mirror, and later, when he's moving over me, I think of the constellation of beauty marks peppering her stomach and the underside of one breast. I'm sitting at his desk, slowly getting lit on the fifth of bourbon he keeps in a drawer. Holly fills my head like an annoying pop song. They must have met in this city. He's lived here for 15 years, and she has to be nearby somewhere. No one ever leaves. His address book is by the phone. She's on the S page, with eight or nine phone numbers scrawled beneath her name in alternating colors of ink, all crossed out except for one. It rings a few times, and the message clicks on. Hey, it's Holly. You know the drill. Her voice is soft and rough, a scraped knee. There's a sharp intake of breath and the sound of the tone. I hang up the receiver. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bear Fiction Magazine podcast, recorded on July 31st, 2014. That was May Lantan reading from her story Legendary. If you're in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, Buffalo, Dallas, Austin, Ann Arbor, or Detroit, you can catch Maylan reading from her two collections during her tour this August and September, and then she will finish that tour over this side of the Atlantic in Cork at the Cork Short Story Festival. For more details, visit her website, may-lan.com. Next week, I'll be bringing you an exceptional reading by Tanya Hirschman. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store via the Stitcher Radio On Demand app and on SoundCloud. Some of the writing from Bear Fiction Magazine can also be found on our website, bearfictionmagazine.co.uk, where print, digital copies and subscriptions are, of course, available to purchase. For full details about the Bear Fiction Prize and the awards for poetry, flash fiction and short story, visit our competitions pages on bearfictionmagazine.co.uk forward slash competitions. The music for this podcast was Sidewalk Shade by Kevin McLeod and it's provided under a Creative Commons license. I'm Robert Harper, editor of the magazine, and you've been listening to the Bear Fiction Podcast. <laughs>